0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and here we go now with B.C.'s new condo rules, as announced yesterday by Premier David Eby. No more rental restrictions in condos all condos would be available to rent if the owner wants to rent them out. Some strata councils have no rental bylaws in place. You are not allowed to rent out your condo in some buildings. All suites must be owner occupied. EB says that's not on anymore. Those type of rules will not be allowed. All condos would be eligible to be rented out. Now, there's a backlash against this by some strata councils. I've got Tony Giaventu standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to what David Eby had to say yesterday. Why is he doing this? He explains why here. Have a listen.
1: It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home, and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual.
0: Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Tony Giaventu, Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association of BC. Very pleased to welcome him back. Tony, thank you for coming on.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure, Mike. Kind of an interesting statement, don't you think?
0: I, I think it really is an interesting situation, and this is clearly what we anticipated EB was going to do, taking very swift action here. Your thoughts on it. What do you think about what he's doing here?
1: Well, there are three things that are happening in this legislation. The first is electronic meetings are going to become part of the legislation. So, strata corporations won't need a bylaw for electronic general meetings. That's a good thing. The age restriction is being um, uh, uh, defined clearly as only 55 and over. So, it protects our seniors' communities and age restrictions below that really are complicated hard to enforce and create real issues with family status are being eliminated. I, that's, that's a good thing, too, because we don't have many buildings with ages that are 19 and over or 35 and over, but they have been very complicated to administer. The rental bylaws, on the other hand, are going to create a dynamic change for a lot of the property owners across the province. And that's okay. what I think that's where we really need to focus.
0: Okay, let's talk about this now, because what EB explained yesterday was, look, we're in a housing crisis, people need homes, they need a roof over their head, and a lot of people are looking for an affordable place to rent. And he says that these condo rules in some buildings where you're not allowed to rent out a place are frustrating people trying to get into a home. Do you not, do you disagree with that?
1: Well, the problem is not whether I agree or disagree. The issue is the word affordability was linked to the statement. Condos aren't affordable um, to be renting. If you're a landlord and you're going to put your new condo on the market to rent it, um, you're going to be in a situation where you have to pay your mortgage. You have to pay for your taxes, pay for your insurance, your strategies. um, You're going to be, putting all bundling all of these things together this is not affordable housing and if you have a larger condo that's a two three or four bedroom unit it is definitely not affordable housing and and you know you just have to look um you know the comment on craigslist well just look at craigslist one bedrooms in vancouver start between 2500 and 3200 a month that's not affordable family housing
0: well and shouldn't so, it well shouldn't it be the uh, up to the owner of the suite though to decide whether they want to rent the rent the suite out or not
1: Well they you know <laughs> there are 2900 units that it had the exemption from the vacant homes tax because they claimed that there was a strata bylaw that prevented them from renting. There were not, weren't enough un, um, rentals available. Most strata corporations, by the way, permit some level of rentals. Very few of them actually prohibit rentals outright. So most of them per- permit some level of rentals as well as we have exemptions for rentals under family status. So, you know, so there, are, it's, so it's a little bit misleading in the sense, but the other thing about the 2,900 exemptions um, I can, I'm going to hazard a guess that pretty much every one of these were, had rental bylaws when people bought in. It's, this is not new information to them. Um, we have to look at the, the makeup of strata corporations in B.C. There's, you know, We have 34,000 stratas across the province. 22,000 of them around that number are 50 units or less. They're all self-managed. There, there are no managers available to manage them. Um, we have volunteer strata councils. Um, who are basically managed managing their own properties this is where the lion's share of the bylaws the 300000 that was identified by by um, the premier said, um, we're in this, rent- this rental restriction. This is where the lion's share of them are. So all of a sudden, we're going to be taking and shifting over to communities now that you're going to be ending, ending up with um, strata volunteer strata councils being default landlords. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of great renters. Don't get me wrong. And yeah. a lot of these renters actually participate in their strata councils. They are long-term people in their buildings. But bad renters come with bad landlords and bad landlords basically abandon their tenants as long as they're there. And the strata councils are left dealing with them. And we don't really have um, any teeth within the Strata Property Act or the Residential Tenancy Act to be able to deal with this. Strata corporations, you know, that's one of the problems here. Right so so you're so
0: you in right so your concern is that okay let's say there are you know David Eby argued yesterday that there are 2900 empty condos sitting there empty that could be rented out just because of but they can't because of these rules so that's why he says he's doing this I I, I guess that's a, that's a lot of condos 2900 condos you could rent out to people who are desperately looking for a place to rent okay I get that but you're saying that you know, you get a bad land, you get a bad tenant in there, and maybe the landlord, the owner of the suite, is not around. You might have an absentee owner. Right now, it's down to this volunteer strata council to go and deal with this bad tenant.
1: Correct. Well, it is. It is, and they're yeah. going to have to deal with it. Right. Um, yeah. You know, the 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 other side of this is, if you can afford twenty five hundred or three thousand dollars a month to rent a condo, there are rentals available. This is not. This is not the problem. It's the affordability that really is the big issue. But, you know, here's the other comparison, Mike. Compare 2,900 units um, across the province versus um, 50,000 Airbnb short-term rentals between Greater Vancouver and Greater Victoria that are
0: also consuming the same condo units. Why aren't we addressing those? Okay. Speaking of affordability, is there a potential here for this this measure to backfire when it comes to affordability and actually drive up the cost of condos. Because now if you're saying that every condo will be available to rent out, that would make it a more attractive investment to someone who wants to be an absentee landlord, who wants to buy a place just as an investment and recoup some of the money by renting it out. Does that not drive up demand for these suites and then make them more expensive?
1: I think time will tell, but I agree with you, yes, we, we already have investors and buyers Um, who will be looking to these communities. These are the more affordable communities to be purchasing a home in for your family. These are the communities now when you go to purchase in, you won't be just competing with somebody else who wants to live there. You're now going to be competing with an investor or a speculator. It also makes a lot of the buildings that are older, lower-density buildings that are probably due for redevelopment at some point, it makes a lot of those buildings in the Broadway corridor in New Westminster in North Vancouver, a lot of those buildings now um, are going to be targets for buyers and investors looking to gain on the benefits of the redevelopment of those properties. So we're, we're opening a door here that really could backfire on us,
0: yes. Okay. I'm talking about BC's new condo rules, rental restrictions being phased out. Tony Giaventu is my guest, full phone board. Carlos in New West. Hi, Carlos. Go ahead. Hi, how are you today, Mike? I'm good. Go ahead.
1: Now, I'm hoping uh, Tony can uh, shed some light on this. These are older buildings. Um, and I forget what the cutoff date is. So all new builds uh, allow rentals. So what happened, my son was able to get into a condo in U.S. because it was a non-rental older building, and it was cheaper than buying into something newer Because there was non-rentals, he wasn't competing against offshore investors or local investors that were buying up the suites and flipping them out and charging twenty thousand uh, dollars a uh, $25, um, uh, $2,500 $20, a month. So it, it allowed him to get into the, into the market without being a renter. All this is doing is, is forcing people to be renters for their entire lives. If, if he wasn't able to get into that building, he would, he'd be renting for his entire life. So it was, it was cheaper to get in there. And it's, this is ludicrous. There's no consultation. Uh, this really upsets my family.
0: Okay. Thank you, Tony. We talked about this earlier about whether this has the unintended consequence of driving up condo values. Speaking of consultation, did the government come and talk to you about this? Did they consult with you?
1: Um, There has been some consultation. All these issues have been flagged and and raised already, and a broader public consultation was recommended, but it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. So um, I I think that one of the interesting things that was said was that new buildings since 2010 did not have um, rental bylaws, um, but but in fact they did. Um, In 2010, the government introduced a provision that allowed developers to file a rental disclosure that excluded units from rental bylaws for a specific period. And for most buildings that were more than 10 units, um, the developers did that for a period of 50 years or 100 years. So those buildings were essentially exempt from rental bylaws. But for a lot of the buildings of less than 10 units, Going back to the self-managed stratas, they didn't file those exemptions and those communities adopted rental bylaws um, because they wanted to have more control over, you know, the volunteers who's on site and who's in residence. Uh, Those are they're going to lose those as well.
0: Rick and Delta on the open line. Hi, Rick.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, the only thing that may temper the market with respect to to buying condos is the interest rates. I mean, the last number, a couple of years, we saw total insane uh, multiple, multiple offers on new construction because that rental disclosure statement said 99 years you can rent for. Interest rates were in the tank and rental rates were through the roof. So every Tom, Dick, and Harry that had equity in a home thought, "That heck with this! I'll buy. Uh, you know, I'll take a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar mortgage on my on my home and become a prop a property owner or a rental property owner."
0: Yeah, right. And yeah. Uh,
1: so the prices were going totally
0: through the roof because of it. Yeah, yeah. Now this is this is the unintended consequence that we talked about that we fear here as a result of this. I think that's a legit issue. Ryan in Vancouver. Hi, Ryan. Go ahead.
1: Hi. Yeah. Uh, one thing on the price. I think uh, you're likely. Yeah. Condo prices will go up because condos are more useful now. But rents will go down, and that's the point. I think we're ignoring the benefit that. Yeah, twenty five hundred dollars a month for rent isn't that affordable, but it's more affordable than a two hundred thousand dollar down payment. Let alone getting a mortgage today.
0: How do, you um, figure, did, how do you figure rents will go down?
1: Well, if you convert a strata to a rental, yeah. then the supply of strata goes down, but the supply of renters goes up. So it's okay. supply and demand.
0: Okay, um, so, okay, so if you increase the supply of rentals, the, rents, the rent should go down. Tony, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, uh, well, that would be true if we had a vacancy rate of 10 or 15% in stratas with rental bylaws, but we, in fact, have a 1% Vacancy rate in stratas with that are that have rental bylaws because they have to be occupied. So we won't be, we won't be creating this big inventory of units um, that will create competition. If that was the result, that would be great. Um, but that right. isn't going to be the result. We're going to be displacing people. You know, another quirky little anomaly here is we have wind-ups where I start a strata corporations at a certain age. They've got a developer who bought them out. They've agreed to it. They wind, they wind up. We had one recently where 88 units all basically went to the market a few months ago, <clears throat> all of them with about a million dollars in their pocket. And they had a heck of a time competing for the minimal amount of, of inventory that was available, I'm not sure this is going to make um, a better situation as we see Go more wind-ups, more competition here.
0: Aaron on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Aaron. Go ahead. Disclosure, I'm a, a realtor in Vancouver, and uh, I do
1: a lot of work in the areas like West End, Mount Pleasant, Kitsilano. and a lot of these areas, I can tell you, like over the years, you, you know, a lot of people uh, are not looking to buy as investments, but having the option, if they'd had the option of buying a home and then being able to rent it out, you know, maybe they got a job transfer, uh, family circumstances. Um, I, I think it really would open up a lot of rental. So, I mean, I think the, the proposed changes to remove the restrictions will have a net positive impact on,
0: on the okay. rental availability. Tony, what do you say to him?
1: I I, I would agree, except that just buildings built since 2010 Um, for the most part in the larger buildings, have a vacancy rate of around 20 to 24%. They're not being occupied because they're being used for short-term accommodations or investors. So if if people really wanted the investment home that they had the flexibility for, they they were buying units that were constructed post-2010 with the exemptions.
0: Is there any way, you've got 30 seconds left here, is there any way you can fight back on this?
1: Um, I think our, our workload ahead of us to help all the province, the stratas, and the province get through all of this is going to be just daunting. Because once government yeah. adopts this legislation, it's a done deal.
0: Tony, thank you for coming on. Mike, pleasure as always. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the outcome of a trial that we've followed closely here on the show. It's the trial of former Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum. He's found not guilty, not guilty of public mischief yesterday following that high-profile trial. McCallum had been accused of making a false police report, alleging a political opponent ran over his foot during a heated confrontation in a grocery store parking lot last year. Yesterday, Judge Reginald Harris delivered the verdict, telling the court he was satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that McCallop did, in fact, have his foot run over in the confrontation with Debbie Johnstone. Let's go back in time here now to last September of last year. Here is what McCallum had to say at the time of what happened in the parking lot of the grocery store.
2: She clipped my knee and, and my bottom leg and then ran over my foot at the same time and then took off.
0: Okay, so after McCallum made that claim, he was charged with public mischief and alleged that he had filed a false police report. The judge yesterday... Did not agree with that contention, found McCallum not guilty. Here is McCallum yesterday speaking outside the courtroom.
2: I am um, pleased with the decision. And I want to thank my lawyers for their tremendous efforts in this case. I want to give a very special thanks to my family for understanding and supporting me.
0: Okay, it's Doug McCallum speaking yesterday. I knew this was going to happen. I predicted on an earlier show here I thought McCallum was going to beat this. I didn't think that the videotape evidence was conclusive enough in court. I thought that the defense witnesses uh, were quite powerful. McCallum had really, really good lawyers. When taxpayers are paying for your lawyers, you hire the best. And he had excellent defense in court. So I was not surprised he beat the rap on this yesterday. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Kyla Lee, lawyer at Acumen Law. Hi, Kyla. Thanks for coming on today.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, Kyla, did the verdict surprise you in any way?
3: Um, you know, if you had asked me before the trial started, it would have. Um, but after all the evidence came out and, and you know, the medical experts testified um, and uh, the defense uh, put on their case, uh, no, it didn't surprise me.
0: Okay. One of the things that the judge emphasized yesterday was you have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt. Can you explain to the listeners what that means? Like that, that's a high bar you have to clear here to convict someone, right?
3: It is a very high bar. It essentially means that if they're, you know, even if the judge thinks that somebody is probably guilty or likely guilty, they still have to be acquitted because the evidence has to satisfy them beyond any reasonable doubt. Obviously, anything that's not reasonable, like, you know, aliens abducted you or something like that is not going to meet the bar. Um, But if if there's a a reason to believe that maybe this could have happened the way that Mr. McCallum said, then the judge has to acquit him. Um, And I I think that it, it wasn't even close to, beyond a reasonable doubt by the end of that trial
0: yeah and when you take a look at some of the evidence that was presented by mccallum's lawyer I, I thought that was quite compelling too uh especially there was there was testimony from a medical witness who said that they detected some swelling in mccallum's foot let's listen to this report here this is during the trial this is global news reporter Catherine urquhart then i'll get your thoughts
3: Three witnesses have appeared for defence, including Dennis Chimek. The biomechanical engineer testified a foot can be driven over without bones breaking. And a radiologist from Peace Arch Hospital testified that x-rays appeared to show swelling on McCallum's left foot although he never examined the foot.
0: Okay, so when they started talking about there was some swelling on the foot, yeah, there were no broken bones in his foot, but you had that expert testimony saying, well, you know, you get driven over, it's not necessarily going to break the bones in your foot. I thought, how powerful do you think that evidence was?
3: I think it's very powerful. I mean, I even heard yesterday on your show callers calling in and saying, you know, it's completely unbelievable that your, your bones wouldn't break, especially at, at his age. Um, but, you know, if the medical evidence says that it can't happen uh, unless there's some evidence presented by the Crown um, to show that that medical opinion is completely wrong, uh, the judge has to take that into consideration as part of the totality of the evidence that's led in determining whether or not his foot was run over and whether or not he fabricated yeah. the story to the
0: police. Right. And then when we take a look at the videotape evidence that was presented in court and the videotape was taken at a little bit of a distance, it was a little bit grainy. I thought there was a, there was a little bit of some obstruction in the video. It wasn't like a crystal clear, super close, high definition video. And I thought the video, the videotape was a little inconclusive. I mean, people were saying, okay, you see the car go by him and he doesn't seem to react in a way he doesn't fall down. He doesn't seem to be limping at all. Right. What did you think of that?
3: Well, it's very interesting because legally speaking, the way that a person reacts to an incident is not usually given much weight. And this is because, People react differently to all sorts of situations. You have to remember, as the judge found in this case, that this was already a very heated and, and sort of stressful encounter between the two of them. Um, you know, Ms. Johnstone had testified that she had said some pretty not nice things uh, to yeah. Mary Callum. Um, right. you know, and, and so the way that somebody would react in that situation is not something that we can just say is common sense. And so his failure to react in that moment, given that adrenaline was high and tensions were high, is not something that can be given any weight in saying whether or not his foot was run over.
0: Right. Here's the other thing. Like, McCallum had also said at one point that he was pinned. He was pinned by the vehicle. And I think that's clearly is not what happened in the video that you see. But that still was not a deal breaker here for, th- for the judge finding him not guilty, because the judge was saying, well you know, McCallum was under, this was a stressful, frightening event. And he didn't seem to seem too concerned that McCallum's description of what happened was not precisely accurate, right?
1: And this
3: is a some- This is something that happens in court a lot, where you know judges hear conflicting accounts from witnesses all the time, where two people can honestly believe that a completely different version of events happened. It doesn't make him lacking credibility. And in the decision, the judge even emphasized that not only would he have to find that Ms. McCallum fabricated this information, but also that he did so with the intention of having Ms. Johnstone charged with a criminal offense that she didn't commit. And given everything that had happened. Um, it was just not likely that that was the thought process, um, at the time. Um, and certainly it wasn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt.
0: Yeah. And the judge went into some detail about what could have been the motivation or the motive for McCallum here to file a false police report. And he just didn't, like you said, he just didn't, the judge just didn't buy it here. So I'm looking at the, the judgment here that was released yesterday and the judge wrote McCallum is an experienced politician who in his own words has thick skin He's accustomed to being the target of negative attention. And then he writes, it is thus unlikely in this particular case that this, this event would frustrate him to such a degree that he would immediately embark on revenge through a labyrinth of false claims. He also notes that McCallum encouraged the police to check the surveillance video footage. And the judge said, look, if this had been this wildly concocted story that he'd been pinned by this vehicle, why would he tell police to check the video, right? So that jumped out at the judge as well. Your thoughts?
3: Yes, I mean, absolutely. And and what jumped out for me on the analysis of whether there was a motive was that he took all of these steps before even reporting it to the police, going and getting medical attention, all of those things that a person who hadn't had their foot run over, who would know that they, you know, they're not going to get the medical report that they need, they're not going to have any evidence of any injuries, um, you wouldn't take that. You wouldn't do all of those things if you were truly trying to fabricate a story about somebody to get them charged with an offense. And So that's yeah. also factored into the motive analysis.
0: Right, and that ju- the judge found that to be key here in finding McCallum not guilty. Speaking to Kyla Lee about the Doug McCallum verdict yesterday, so it leaves a question, should this case have been prosecuted at all in the first place? Now, here is former Surrey City Councillor Lori Guerra uh, speaking outside of court yesterday. She doesn't think that this should have gotten even, even to this point. Here's what she had to say.
3: I think there should be an investigation as to why um, a case like this that didn't have that threshold, in my opinion, was investigated to begin with.
0: Okay. I recall, lawyer uh, Kyla, you're the expert here, so you correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, when they go through a charge approval process like this, I think there are two factors they consider. One is the likelihood of conviction, so do they have a strong case that's likely to succeed in court, so that's a factor. And another one is, is it in the public interest And I to prosecute? And I think maybe in this case they might have been thinking... Well, you know, a politician making a false claim about a critic of their policies is, is is a serious thing that, you know, in the public interest, maybe we should prosecute that. But do you think it was the right decision to go forward with the case in the in the first place?
3: Well, I mean, at the end of the day, obviously, we don't have all of the information that uh, the BC Prosecution Service or the, the um, special prosecutor had when making the decision to approve the charges. And there may be information that was not able to be admitted into court or presented in court that may have helped to make that decision. But I think there does come a time where, you know, as your case is falling apart in court, <laughs> you need to really rethink uh, whether or not continuing the prosecution is in the public interest. And certainly the, the message that's getting sent, which is that if you have a political opponent making up a false claim about them to keep them from criticizing you is not appropriate, that was already yeah. sent as soon as the charges were approved. It didn't need yeah. to get to the end necessarily to send that message.
0: Okay now here's the last part of this whole this whole strange saga here and that is the fact that Surrey taxpayers have been paying for Doug McCallum's a uh, very high-priced legal team here to defend him in this case successfully it turned out. So the question is should Surrey taxpayers pay for his lawyer? Should taxpayers pay for pay for lawyers in these type of cases going forward? Here's the new Surrey mayor Brenda Locke and how she doesn't think the taxpayers should have paid for McCallum's lawyers. Have a listen. I instructed staff to stop paying any further legal bills uh, for Doug McCallum, and that
3: now, uh, moving forward, they will not be paid by the the uh,
1: taxpayer.
0: You know, I don't think I'll make another prediction here. I don't think that the city of Surrey is will be successful in getting their money back here that they paid to these to McCallum's lawyers. If that's what they try, like I just don't think that's on. Especially now that he's been found not guilty. But your thoughts?
3: I think the not guilty finding is going to be key to that um, because this was a failed prosecution. It makes it very hard to make a case that the taxpayers were on the hook for something that essentially facilitated or was the consequence of nefarious conduct, which of course makes a very strong case for not putting the taxpayers on the hook. I do think a nuanced approach to making taxpayers pay for illegal costs associated with uh, politicians and and uh, city council members' um fees is, Required Because in some circumstances, somebody might be facing civil claims that are completely meritless, that may cost you a lot of money to defend as a result of your your role in politics. Um, And you should not have to expose yourself personally to those risks. But if you commit a criminal offense, I don't think that you should be able to get your money back uh, or get your legal fees covered.
0: Kyla, thanks for coming on today.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk about the delays and backlogs in our healthcare system now. We talk a lot about this on the show and there are some heartbreaking cases emerging now of patients who are facing long waiting lists for treatment, including people with serious complex medical conditions. On yesterday's show, I spoke to Victoria parents Chelsea Lee and Rob Vienhoff. Their six-month-old son Nash had his life-saving heart surgery canceled at the last minute at BC Children's Hospital. Why? Because of a shortage of staff and beds at the hospital. Their emergency room has been overwhelmed with sick kids fighting respiratory illnesses right now. But it's not just BC Children's Hospital. We're seeing delays and backlogs across the system, including cancer testing and treatment. Maybe you saw the Global News story last night about registered nurse Farah Kruger, her heartbreaking wait for surgery as a tumor grows larger in her body. Meanwhile, what about testing for cancer? We're constantly told that early detection is crucial to successful treatment, but there are delays for testing as well. Have a listen to this now. This is Dr. Charlotte Yong-Hing, who is a radiologist with the BC Cancer Agency, speaking to me on an earlier show.
3: There, there's a crisis in BC. There's hundreds of thousands of patients who are, work, are waiting for medical imaging in the province, and these wait times are dangerously long. And it's true that some of those patients are not going to be cancer patients, but a number of those, a huge number of those cases are probably cancer patients.
0: Radiologist, Dr. Charlotte Yong Hing. And we're seeing this across Canada right now. The Canadian Association of Radiologists also sounding the alarm. Let's discuss it now with Dr. Gilles Soulet, president of the Canadian Association of Radiologists. And I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Soulet, thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you so much for giving us this uh, opportunity to discuss important, I mean, uh, challenge for our patients.
0: Yeah, for sure. Thank you for being here. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do there as radiologists? Like, when people hear radiology, I think they think of X-rays, but it's also like CT scans, MRIs, right?
2: Yeah. Actually, now it's called medical imaging. So inside medical imaging, you have the x-ray, you know, but CT, uh, MRI, uh, ultrasound. But there is also some, I mean, minimally invasive intervention we can do uh, using, I mean, x-ray or CT. So. A lot of diagnostic procedures, so, I mean, to detect a disease like cancer, but also it's very important to follow the patient. Uh, Let's say after chemotherapy, you need to repeat CT to see how you respond to the chemotherapy. So, uh, basically, I mean, medical imaging is a cornerstone for medical decision at every step of your treatment.
0: Yeah, how important is... You know, medical imaging for early detection of like a serious disease like cancer. Because we hear this all the time, right? You want to catch it early, you want early detection. How important is that?
2: Yeah, it's very important. Basically, there are some programs, we call that screening programs like for uh, breast cancer, uh, lung cancer now, so I mean, patients at high risk will be screened. But um, if you have any kind of symptoms, so let's say you have abdominal pain, uh, we don't know what you have. You You can have nothing, but you can have a cancer. And so, for those patients who don't know what they have, it's very important to be timely because uh, if you have too long waiting time, you can lose your chance to be cured. Um, as an example we um, we we really aim to have uh, all patients having the examination within one month. Uh, right. i mean for non emergent cases uh, now uh, for CT, it's more than three, between three and four months, and for MRI, it's between five and six months. So it's a delay which is not acceptable uh, compared to the balance of the OECD uh, countries.
0: They okay. Think- th- okay. Those are some very troubling statistics you just cited there. So uh, those type of waits, how can you put that into sort of context? Are, are the waiting lists, the waiting times, getting longer?
2: Yeah. So uh, before the COVID uh, crisis, uh, we estimated the time um, below three months for a CT and, let's say, three months for, for an MRI. Uh, now we have done recently a survey and uh, the situation worsened significantly. So we are closer to five, six months on MRI and close to four months for, for a CT. But already in 2019, when we disclosed these numbers, we were above the recommended uh, waiting times. So okay. I think the situation is worse, but uh, we, we started from, from a bad situation already.
0: Why is it happening? Why are these weights getting worse?
2: Yeah, so we, we have done a kind of extensive diagnostic uh, on the situation. So first of all, uh, when you compare Canada to the balance of the OECD countries, we have less equipment. Okay, Uh, so let's say we have between 10 and 15%, sometimes 20% when you look at MRI, uh, I mean CT units in Canada compared to the mean of the OECD. On top of that, our equipment is older. So we have some golden rules, and we are supposed to have no more than 10% of our equipment aged more than 10 years old. And now we're 35% of these equipments which are aged more 10 years old. So there are two consequences on that. First, we have more downtime because of a failure of the equipment. And second, also, the new equipment is faster, so it can operate faster. So that's why we are asking, I mean, for the federal investment that can be transferred to the provinces to buy new equipment. But this is not the only solution because we need, I mean, people to run these equipments. Right. And we also have a shortage uh, of uh, MR uh, medical radiation technologies MRTs who are really the people who operate uh, these uh, machines and uh, so we we are short of staff uh, also we we have issue of uh, burnout of staff so we we ask to have um, more i mean uh, investment in uh, training but also um, give to this This, I mean, uh, health workers, better condition, because when we compare to other, uh, I mean, uh, health workers like nurses, the conditions are not so good. So have policies that can really help us to retain or to attract uh, these people that can uh, operate uh, our machines. So this is the first to ask we we, uh, presented to the federal uh, government and to the MP uh, in Ottawa. Uh, Also, we... We also have a second ask, is to have a kind of national uh, electronic uh, referral system. Uh, now it's not so easy, I mean, to have the exact, uh, uh, I mean, picture of the waiting list, how many people are waiting, to be sure we can avoid duplicate, I mean, referrals, be sure that uh, all the referrals, uh, we, we will have the right examination for the right patients, and also have a timely examination. So now we ask to have this implementation of an electronic referral that can uh, really allow us to have the exact picture of how many people are waiting, how many people really need to be uh, done in a short uh, period of time or not, and be sure this is the right examination for the right patient. So this can really help a lot the system, yeah.
0: Speaking to Dr. Gilles Soulet, President, Canadian Association of Radiologists, the lengthening wait lists in Canada for medical imaging, MRIs, CT scans. Is this, uh, these wait lists, are they consistent across the whole country? Like, is this happening everywhere in Canada that these wait lists are getting longer?
2: Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And unfortunately, this is a national problem. That's why we really, um, really, to make pressure and convince people at the federal government to help us and to help the provinces to invest. Yeah. But depending on the provinces, the, I mean, the problem can be slightly different. I mean, some provinces will have more problems in equipment, so more city or MR unit, Other we have more problems, I mean, in staff, so having uh, these MRTs, these radiation technologies to, to run the equipment. But I can tell you that for the uh, electronic referral and all these uh, health information systems that can help us to be more efficient, this is a national problem. And we need to invest into that because we can really gain a lot of productivity and be more efficient. Yeah.
0: La- last question for you. Are people dying from this or at risk of dying? Like you mentioned the importance of early detection of a serious disease like cancer. If you don't catch it early, does that increase the risk of people not being not being cured, like you say, leading to death from cancer? Like, are people dying because of these wait lists?
2: Yeah, definitely. But the problem is very difficult for us to to have, I mean, appropriate statistic on that. So, but we know, we know that we, we, especially following the COVID, so we have more patients having advanced cancer, but it's not only cancer. You can have, I mean, aortic aneurysms and experience a rupture because you don't have your your CT. And it wasn't detected on time. So there is a lot of diseases that can really be missed, uh, underdiagnosed, and uh, really you can... Lost your chance to 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 go through that, yeah. Unfortunately, thank, yeah. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from nine to noon on nine eighty CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email: mike at cknw dot com. Thanks again for listening.